It is Lee. No, it's not Lima time time. I'm just so used to say it's not Lima time time. It's the Michael Bourne identity. I am James. I'm so excited about this next, uh, this next interview. I've actually gone to the uh, unprecedented. I, I've taken some notes. Like I actually have a list of, of things uh, to talk about in front of me. That's how important this is because I'm, I'm speaking. The guest for today is absolute journalistic royalty. Uh, and, and I'm super pumped about this. Um, may I present to you 2017 Pulitzer Prize winner, David Farentel. David, how you been? Great, man. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for doing this. I, I, you know, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, how's your Thanksgiving? It's been great so far, actually. It's been, it's been so nice. You know, we've been so busy through the election and then after the election, it was not as, as quiet as I thought. So now that's the, the attempt to subvert the election seems over. And then we got a five day break. <laughs> <laughs> got to go to my mom's for uh, for Thanksgiving yesterday and have some good food. So it was it's been really nice. Okay, so you grew up in you grew up in Houston. Yeah, and and there is a there is a point where our lives follow a very similar similar path, and then they diverge wildly. Because <laughs> uh, you were the editor of your school newspaper. You went to Memorial, is that right? That's right. Okay, so you were the editor of the school newspaper. I was the editor of the school newspaper for two years at Sam Rayburn High School, which, you know, Rayburn is not Memorial. uh, And I'm sure our newspapers were very different because I basically just tried to fill the newspaper staff with girls I wanted to go out with. (laughs) So I think my senior year, we only put out like four issues because we just watched (laughs) that 210 all day. Um, So when did you realize that that journalism was sort of, that's the path you wanted to go down? It was, it was, well, partly in high school. So I, you know, I got kind of put in journalism by mistake. I'd wanted to be in something else, but they didn't have enough, you know, my schedule didn't work out. So I ended up in the first journalism class. And the thing that for me was at the end of the year, they make the journalism, like the journalism one students put out the paper. Like one issue is put out by these like ragtag bunch of freshmen that just kind of get put into the class. And I just love that experience. Like the experience, not only of writing the paper, but like laying it out, making sure it was all taken care of. Like, I just love the experience of putting out the newspaper. And then I thought, well, you know, this is something that I sort of stumbled into, but really liked. Um, And then I was sort of set to leave it. And then I went to college. In college, I I thought I was going to be a humor writer. I I had written like a humor column for the school paper. And I had sort of a similar, like, well, so I went to the first meeting of the humor magazine and they handed out this list of jokes, like not specific jokes, but kinds of jokes that were not funny. They had to they had to be were not funny, and uh, and I like that was all I had. My entire repertoire was in that in the not funny list. And, and I, I looked around the room, and so like, hey, you know, I don't you know have what these people want, and there were literally no women. And like, you know, that wasn't my whole goal of an extracurricular, but I wanted to meet at least meet a few while I was in college. Right. Um, and so then I went to the newspaper. The newspaper meeting was the next day. You know, there you could write this, you write a story right away. You know, they give you an assignment. You could go out there and be published in the paper tomorrow. And they were like a normal cross section of society in the in the room, including women. So uh, at that, I thought, well, okay, maybe this is the place I ought to be, and just fell into it there in college and loved it. So, so you went to you went from Memorial to Harvard. Was was that always like your was Harvard like your number one choice? Did you just have did you have other options that you were looking at? kind of because I went to Abilene Christian which is a terrible idea uh but uh so how did you decide on Harvard well so I it was not my goal from the beginning my parents went to UT and that's sort of why where I assumed I would go um and then you know when I got to junior senior year you know Memorial had a good record of getting people into schools in the east coast and there were a lot of people who looked you know sort of that was 
part of the culture was that you would at least consider that. Um, and so I applied to a bunch of places and, you know, Harvard, when I got in there, I thought, you know, I didn't really know much about it, and, but I knew it was kind of far away and I wanted to try out living some other part of the country. And, you know, Boston seemed like a really interesting place far away. So, um, so I said, yes, and it, it was, it was more different even than I expected, um, but I was glad to have gotten away. Yeah, no, for sure. Like I was, so Abilene is like six hours from Houston. That, obviously Boston or Cambridge is a lot, is a lot further. I, I thought that that was, it was, it was important not to go to U of H Clear Lake or to U of H to go somewhere else, even if it is freaking Abilene. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was, so that, that was always a, a positive step for me. Um, well, also in my family, there was these legendary stories about my, when my uncle went to the University of Texas that my grandmother was so overprotective that she'd call his dorm. And if he wasn't there, this is like long before answering machines. If he wasn't there and she couldn't figure out why he wasn't there, she would send my grandfather to drive to Austin for three hours. And she, he'd arrive at like two o'clock in the morning. And when, it, you know, and then, you know, so my uncle was like constantly getting midnight visits because he'd missed a phone call. And when I heard That's that story, hilarious. like my mother, she's not, she's not like that, but she had inherited some of those tendencies. And I was like, if I go to Rice, if I go to, you know, if I go to someplace nearby, this might happen. I got to get the hell away. I got to get the <laughs> plane ride away just to make sure that I'm like, you know, f- totally out of the orbit and on my own. <laughs> That's funny. And, and like the, there, I guess there wouldn't have been much of a culture shock going from like there was a little bit going from Houston to Abilene um but but going from Houston to, to Boston that's that's not I mean they they the the accent's way different um but I mean it, it couldn't have been too much of an adjustment it was I mean it was not you know most of the adjustment I think was just adjusting to the college rather than like adjusting you know the, the town is a little different uh, you know and there are parts of Boston that are really different than Texas but um but no the, the hard part was the adjusting to college and just the like sort of, you know, the mentality that caused people to get to Harvard, like many of them were unable to shed that personality, which is like, I'm the smartest person here. No one tells me anything. You know, a lot of people struggle to shed that personality and adopt something else. Uh, That was the hard part of adjusting. It was sort of like figuring out, you know, sort of my place in that world and finding other people who were not so stressed out all the time. (laughs) So you graduated in in 2000 um, and, and you went immediately to the Washington Post. Is that right? Yeah, it was, a, it was the luckiest thing. So the Washington Post at that time was like rolling in money from the print paper. You know, Craigslist wasn't really a thing yet. Internet advertising hadn't really taken our business away. We had tons of money and we were expanding all over the place. So they, were, they hired all these people. It was sort of the, the last, like, you know, before Jeff Bezos bought us many years later, that was the best time to get in in 2000. So I got in, basically got on the ship and then the ship started to sink under me for the, <laughs> next, even the next few years. So, okay, initially you started with like covering the environment, like it, you weren't always a political reporter, right? My first job actually was night cops. So I would come in at 7 p.m. and work till 2 a.m. and basically just cover homicides. Uh, like it was a weird job. Was There was not much, you know, most of reporting, usually you're like proactive. You're trying to find stories. But in this case, like you just waited, you know, you would go into work and you know that somebody out there was alive right now that would be dead later on tonight and you were going to be writing about them. That's so, crazy. So what's like, what was the first, was there like a, <clears throat> like your first like murder case? Was that, I mean, do you remember like every detail of it? I, I've, I've never seen a dead body. Like, I mean, what's, what was, what's it like? Not, I'm not asking you to describe the dead body, to me, but no. like, what's the, the mental process? Well, at that point, DC, it was sort of an interesting quirk that made it a little less shocking, which was that DC was still coming out of the Marion Barry era. So a lot of the homicides, not all of them, we had, there are some 
you know, problems with crime in the suburbs of DC, but a lot of the homicides were in DC. And DC was just coming out of the Marion Barry era. And one of the things that they had done is they'd squandered all their money was that they had no, they had a real shortage of medical examiners. And so usually in most cities, if someone shoots you and you're dead on the street, they'll send a medical examiner out to pronounce you dead on the street. But in DC, they didn't have somebody who worked overnight. And so they would take you to a hospital, no matter how dead you were. And so uh, it meant that when I got to the scene, there often wasn't a body, um, which was good in a lot of ways. It made it less stressful. Um, yeah. But there, there were times, like I, one time that stuck, sticks out to me was I covered a, a stabbing where somebody got stabbed and then ran down the street bleeding and then collapsed in somebody else's you know, yard. And so I was going to like, I'm talking to people in the houses along the way to see if anybody had seen anything. And at one point it was snowing. At one point I looked down and I'm like standing in blood. Like the, the person had bled as they went by and I'm standing there like knocking on the door, like standing in this person's blood. That was when I would thought, okay, I can't do this forever. Like there's something <laughs> of crime and homicide. It, and there's, there's great parts about it. There's great stories there. And I love getting to know the cops. But after that, I thought, okay, I got to do something else. So in 2016, <clears throat> like that's when, that's when things like really changed, right? And it, I mean, and that's pro probably true for a, a lot of journalists. <laughs> the 2016, you know, for whatever reason, yeah, uh, was sort of a, a benchmark year. How did you get? Because I mean, you're sort of like your niche, like what, like your thing is in investigating like the president's finances. Mm -hmm. How did did and, and so you like if if I remember what I was reading correctly. Uh, you were watching some speech that Trump was giving. He mentioned donating up a whole bunch of money and you were like, wait a second, what? And, and, and then, so was that like on your own? And, and that just became like, they were like, this, this is your thing. Like you, you're good at this. You, this is your beat now. Um, how did, how did it go from, you know, standing in a, in a pool of frozen blood to the environment to now, like you're the, the Trump business guy. Well, the, it was really, so I've been on politics for a while, but the Trump thing was kind of an accident. So I had, in 2015, I had wanted to profile candidates. I was basically like, I'd like, you know, I'd spend two weeks writing about Marco Rubio or whatever. And then I, you know, write a profile of Marco Rubio and then, okay, I'm on the Ted Cruz. Like I was just jumping from candidate to candidate. So, but it meant, so then the, the voting starts. So day of Iowa, the day of the Iowa caucuses in 2016, they said, well, you know, we have enough people following Trump around, but just follow Trump around and write a, you know, write a color story about what it's like when he's, you know, in caucus day. There was still this crazy idea. It still seemed crazy that Donald Trump, this guy had been married, you know, three times and on the cover <laughs> of Playboy, that the Christian social conservatives in Iowa, you know, the same people would support Mike Huckabee and Rick Santorum, that those people would like Donald Trump. So like, go write about that. Like, how, how is he, you know, what, what is his connection to these people? And so, um, like you said, I was in Waterloo, Iowa, one of the stops he made that day and saw him basically stop his rally, bring, bring a local charity up, from the up on the stage. And he gave them this huge like golf tournament sized check that said <laughs> Donald J. Trump Foundation for $100,000, you know, a lot of money for a, it was a group that I think that like trained dogs to help people who'd been injured in war. So they said, you know, thank you so much for the donation. They sat down and again, and the rally restarts. And I thought, well, that's, you know, I've covered a lot of political rallies, but I've never seen someone give away a charitable donation, you know? So, and the reason, by the way, the reason is that's illegal. You can't do that. <laughs> the reason nobody does it is it's completely against the law. Um, so, um, so, but after that, the, the thing I always found hard about covering Trump and still true to this day was, you know, you don't know when to take him seriously. You know, so much of what he said is things that he's, 
can't do or he's not going to do or he doesn't understand or he's not, you know, there's so many things that like you spend a lot of time, especially then when he was in power, trying to figure out like, well, he said this, does he mean it? What does he mean? What, you know, what's it going to translate into? And the reason I liked that line of coverage was that the, it, there was a money angle. So, okay, so he'd raised a bunch of money at a telethon for veterans, $6 million, of which $1 million was his own money. And this is, he was giving it away. That's what I was seeing him do. He's giving this money away. And I like the concreteness of the money, right? Money can only be in one place at once. And so well, I started trying to figure out, well, what happened to the rest of the $6 million? Who did he give it to? You know, is he following the law? And I just thought that was going to be a couple day story, but I liked it because, you know, unlike most things with Trump, you could really be sure what the answer was. Um, and then it wasn't a couple day story because the Trump people wouldn't give me the answers that I wanted. Like they couldn't account for where most of the money was. They wouldn't tell me about it. So it was not like at the time I was like, okay, this is what I'm doing for the next year, five years, whatever. I was just like, all right, well, this is interesting. I'm going to keep pulling this thread while I'm going back to doing other stories. And as I pulled the thread, more and more crazy stuff came out. And then it, after like May, it became a full-time beat. That's what I started doing home. So, okay, you, and I swear we're going to talk about the Astros at, at some yeah. point. Um, you've got, so the, was it because you were, you had sort of reported on that, that initial Iowa thing, or I, and maybe you can't answer this, um, but you were the guy that got the tip about the Access Hollywood tape. Were those, yeah. Was it just like, oh, this dude from Memorial, uh, let's, let's go with him. Like, like I don't even know how to ask a question where, where, where you could answer it. Was the Iowa story sort of the catalyst for the Access Hollywood tip or, or was it just that you were a known commodity and you know, you're a good guy on Twitter? I mean, I can't say for sure. And I can't tell you the source obviously, but I think I was much better known. I mean, the, the, the profile that I had by that point, which was October of 2016, was so much higher than it had been in February. I mean, I had you know hundreds of thousands of Twitter followers versus like 7,000 at the start. The Trump charity and the way I had been doing that reporting, which was like trying to do it all in public on Twitter, that had given me a profile that I had, you know, I had obviously not had a year earlier. So, <laughs> so let's, that morning that you got the tip. Yeah. Like was the, surely there was no way of knowing when whenever you wake up like this this is a this is about to be a really crazy day. Um, oh no, not at all. So like what was what, what was your morning like? What were you working on before that tip came in, and and then what happened the rest of the day? Well, you know, I had been doing these stories about you know we expanded our coverage of Trump's promises to give to charity. So we'd done all these stories about you know times he promised to give to charity and hadn't or he'd misuse charity money to like buy portraits of himself or whatever. So, um, so we had, that really happened. About two times he used the charity's money to buy giant portraits of himself, which again- That's amazing. It's not, uh, that's against the law. Um, <laughs> so, so we, I had been, I, we had just published one of those stories. And so I was kind of back to the drawing board. Okay, what's my next story gonna be? It was not supposed to be a crazy day. You know, Friday in a newspaper, if you don't have a story going for that weekend, it can be kind of a, you know, a bunch of people probably do. So it's not like a huge high demand day. Um, and so we got this tip about this video um, and it was not, this was not anything that had been on our radar. You know, um, we obviously, like a lot of people had been chasing tips about um, uh, The Apprentice, you know, that there was supposedly things Trump had said on The Apprentice, that, like outtakes or whatever, which I don't, we still see no evidence that's true. Um, but we didn't hear, I didn't know Trump had ever been on Access Hollywood. Um, and so we get the video and you're watching it and you know, the first 
thing you see is a bus. Like it's just a bus on a back lot. And you can even see Trump. And so I thought, well, what the hell is this? Um, but then within the first, you know, 20 seconds, you, you hear his voice. I mean, it's, it's the same thing that everybody's heard now. Yeah. And, even, you know, and we had, even by then, we had heard Donald Trump's voice so much over the last, that, you know, the previous year and a half. But this was different. Like there was something about what he was saying and the tone he was using that was obviously different. It wasn't just the bad language. It was, you know, the, he, he was showing you a side of himself that even as much as we had seen, we had never seen that side of him. Um, so I saw it, you know, immediately knew it was something significant, you know, and I, so then it was like a matter of sort of summoning all the people who were going to need to be, to be working on this. You know, my editor was like at, at the grocery store, you know, I, like he left his groceries on the counter, like, you know, <laughs> I had to call him, I had to get the video team, I had to alert all the editors, like, look, this is happening, you know, let's start this machinery working. Because we knew that a lot of this power of the story is in the video. And so I needed to make sure the post people like, you know, watch the video, they had to subtitle it because you couldn't quite hear things Trump said, you know, get the lawyers involved so they're okay with it. My job actually that day was not that hard. I mean, it was to write the story, but the story kind of wrote itself. My job was just to call, you know, there were like five people you had to call for comment. NBC, Billy Bush, the actress involved, um, Trump himself, Trump his, campaign, Trump his campaign. I guess then really just those to figure out what their reaction was going to be to it. That's I, I can't I can't even imagine like that 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 I, there's a reason that I don't have a terribly high stress job because I just I would I would just vanish into a puff of smoke if someone <laughs> had sent something like that to me. You mentioned you know how many how many Twitter followers you have. You're fantastic on Twitter, um, but you've got it's it's over like eight hundred and twenty eight thousand followers. Yeah. That gives me heart palpitations. <laughs> Are your mentions and your notifications just a disaster? Like, do you have notifications turned on your phone? Like, how do you how do you handle that level? Like, I think I have way too many followers, and it's not even remotely close to to what you have. What's Twitter like for someone who has almost a million followers? Well, I, I have turned it off my phone. I mean, the thing for me is like there's times when it's been really, Twitter has been really great for me. It's helped me like achieve a profile for these stories I wouldn't have had, it's helped me report, but it's also wasted a lot of my time. And so I've tried to be really conscious about like, you know, when am I using it and when is it using me, you know? And, and so the, the way I've tried to do it now is like when I'm gonna use it, use Twitter, like, you know, every day I'm trying to promote people's stories and like compliment people on things that they've done. But when I'm going to use it, like when I'm going to tell people, you know, this is what I'm looking for. Here's the help. What, you know, here's what I want help, which I've done in the past and it's worked. Like that has to be, I, that's not something I can do in this spare time. Like I'm going to ask Twitter for help on something. I have to put a lot of thought into what I'm asking. And then I have to put a lot of thought into listening, you know, so I don't miss something when it comes by. Because there's times when I've asked for help and then gotten distracted and the help I wanted has like zoomed past me and I didn't even see it. Yeah. So, I mean, that's something that, <clears throat> that stood out to me. Um, where you're like, you're, you're getting people involved, like, like just the way that you set up when you do ask for like, Hey, does anyone know, like, what is this? Like you're letting people be a part of, of the journalism, the investigation, like that's, that's gotta feel good. But I guess for me, I would be worried about, cause I'm gullible and, and I take everyone at face value. Like I would get played so hard. Uh, is it, are there measures that you have in place to, to make sure that you don't just get worked over by, by Twitter? I mean, that is something I worry about a lot. Uh, and I think there's two things. One is, you know, when, before I ever ask for help on Twitter, I feel like I have to have like gone as far as I could go on my own, you know, both to, to sort of show you the, the reader that I'm 
I'm not lazy, you know, that I, I'm, I've, I've, you know, I want to show you that I've gone as far as I can, you know, before I ask for your help. Um, but also because I want to be able to vet what comes back in, you know, if I know the topic well enough, then I, I will know if somebody sends in a hoax or sends in okay. a yes. Um, and you, you, you do get, when you, when you ask for help, you often get a lot of wrong stuff, but I have, I have to say, it's, it's very rare that I get stuff that seems to be wrong and bad faith. Like a lot of people send you stuff that they read or they saw on, you know, they think they saw on Rachel Maddow or whatever. They're trying to help. It's just that what they have isn't, isn't something. Um, but you, you know, what surprises me is that like, often I ask for help on things and I'm like, this probably won't work because the thing I'm asking for, like, you know, only a small number of people might have it, or I can't even conceive of who might know this. And that works. I mean, just to give you an example, we, this, this year, we've been writing a lot about times when the president has basically used the government to pay himself. Like, you know, he goes, he takes a trip to Mar-a-Lago and then bills the government for a bunch of stuff, like his own, the water he drinks and the food he eats and things like that. And so we had sued, we've asked for the State Department for these records and the State Department had basically stonewalled us. Then we sued them and they still stonewalled us. They told us we're, they were gonna give us like 450 records and instead they gave us two pages. Um, and so we were like, well, you know, okay, well, what, what can we do? We can ask for help. And so we, I put out a call on Twitter saying, you know, does anybody know about, you know, federal government spending at Trump properties, you know, associated with these summits that Trump had in Mar-a-Lago thinking like, well, who the hell would know this, right? Maybe the, the guy who keeps the records at Mar-a-Lago or somebody at the state department, the universe has to be pretty small. So maybe this won't work, but it totally worked. Somebody like that, that day got back to us and said, you know, here's hundreds of pages of stuff that nobody's ever seen. Jeez. Um, so like, you know, that was, you know, a, a month before the election or maybe three weeks before the election. You know, if we hadn't done that Twitter call out, that still would still have been secret. You know, the collection would have come and, come and gone and nobody would have known it. Do you feel comfortable with the direction of the country over the, <laughs> over the last couple of weeks? Because it's, it's, it feels bleak. Uh, I'm not going to lie, but you're obviously way closer to the center of power. Um, like scale of one to 10, like how comfortable? Man, you know, part of my job the last few weeks, I was sort of pulled into temporary duty helping with the, basically writing about Trump's attempts to subvert the election. You know, all these places where he lost clearly and was like, you know, even though I lost, you know, you, it, it turns out that, you know, these, in all these states, there's these sort of ceremonial steps where people, you know, most elections, you don't even know this is happening, but people have to count the votes, obviously, but then some people have to sort of sign off that the votes are right. And there's really, you know, in this case, there was really no doubt that the votes were counted correctly, but Trump started putting pressure on these sort of random people. Some of them aren't <laughs> even elected. They're like appointed people to throw out the election results. And it seemed like at times it was going to work, at least in I mean, the state I was most following was Michigan. Michigan has this system where like, these really random people, Republican, you know, they have these boards that are two Democrats and two Republicans, and they're not elected, they're just sort of chosen. And those people had to say yes before the election could be certified. And if they said no, it didn't really matter why, they could throw a wrench in the works. And it seemed like they, the Republicans were succeeding in getting these people to, to back off, or, you know, to, to put a wrench in the works. And I, I did get a little worried about, you know, like if that part of the democracy can't work. If those people don't feel bound to respect the result, I mean, in Michigan, Biden won by 150,000 votes. So there was no, there was no even, you know, wild allegation that that was wrong. You know, like that Biden had clearly won the state. That was a much bigger margin than his margin in all the other states that were under contention, but it still worked. There were a few people who had this kind of power who still doubted or in one case wouldn't vote to certify the election. That did make me a little worried. You know, that if you can't follow the law in that case and and say that you your party lost and you know, respect the outcome and move on to something else, you know, 
say, we'll get them next time. You know, people can't <laughs> say yes, can't handle that duty. Like that's a, that's a really distressing step for, the for our democracy. Now in the end, Michigan got certified, all, it, you know, Trump's plan didn't work, but it just showed how much, you know, how much of our country is administered by these, you know, people who nobody knows their name, but you sort of have to trust in their faith in government. And it seemed like it faltered a little bit this year. Yeah, no, there, there's a lot of, I, I guess I, I mean, I teach history. Um, and I just, but I haven't really come to terms with the idea that everything hangs in the balance of everyone acting in, in good faith. <laughs> and if someone's not, then that's a really, that's not a great step uh, to take. So, um, yeah, I mean, one of the things about, about Trump is he always has sort of like, you know, his, his, his great gift is like denying reality, you know, <laughs> to say that something, you know, when he loses to saying that he didn't lose and, and then sometimes insisting on it so much that he actually does win or, you know, and he, that's worked in business and it, you know, I think he, this, he's never tried it on this kind of scale. And there are people who resisted it. Like the secretary of state in Georgia did a really good job of saying like, no, you know, there's no fraud. Like, you know, we, we should trust in this election result. But like Trump can make his own reality if he can find some people who were sort of like wobbly enough to go along. And, you know, so I'm not surprised that he tried it, but I was kind of surprised that it, it, it seemed to be working in a few places. 2017, you win the Pulitzer Prize. What was a better day the day that you found out you won a Pulitzer Prize or November 1st, 2017, when the Astros won the World Series? <laughs> I don't know, man. They were, they were, they were, those were two amazing things that happened in one year. And I was at game five in 20, in 2017. So that, you know, I actually got to see the, um, that, that may have been the best moment of all. That, um, that's got, I mean, I understand why when, you know, MLB.com or ESPN or whatever, they're ranking, you know, the greatest World Series games of all time. I understand why anything related to the 2017 Astros doesn't make the list. Yeah. But that that's the greatest baseball game of all time. It's got to be. It was. It was it was an incredible game to see in person and you know such a for somebody who grown up around Houston sports where like every time things started to go bad they often went really bad to see <laughs> in that game like how many times we fell behind when when Springer missed the ball in the in the center field and had to go track it down like so many times where you thought it could be a turning point um for bad like they came back and they never, that was just, it was an amazing as a Houston sports fan to see, you know, how many comebacks in that game, like three or four comebacks in that, in one game. I can't remember if it was, I think it was game two when, and it's all such a blur because I think by that point I had, I had like thrown my head into my hands, but whoever it was that, that hit the ball, that, that Chris Taylor dove for it in center field and he mm -hmm. missed it, but it, it bounced off like the, the brim of his hat and it directly to the left fielder. And I, I, and that's why I thought this is what being an Astro, this, this is, yeah, right. it's the baseball equivalent of, of just getting, of just stepping on a rake and hitting yourself in the balls over <laughs> and over and over again. Um, so you, you're a Houston sports guy, rank your preference, Astros, Rockets, Texans. Uh, definitely. It's always been Astros, Oilers slash Texans, Rockets. I, I, okay. I really, I watched a lot of the Rockets when they were, when they won in the nineties, but like basketball was just never my sport. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can understand that. Um, okay. So where were you game seven, you know, 10 59 PM central time. Were you in Washington? Were you in Texas? Were you where, like, where did you get to experience that first world series win? I was here, um, it, it, here in DC watching it at home. 
and my, I have two daughters who were, uh, they were, my, my oldest daughter was five at the time. And she had said, like, I'm going to bed, but wake me up when the Astros win. So they won. <laughs> I went up and got her and she was like, no, leave me alone. <laughs> I'm going back to sleep. Uh, but I was here. Um, I had gotten to go, um, I had a friend who worked for the Astros. I had gotten to go to games four and five in person. And I got to bring my dad to game five. Oh, that's cool. Um, which was because he'd always been the one that had brought me to like Astros games in the past. So that was such a cool experience. I felt so like such a part of that team, you know, watching it from home was great, but I, like I felt so much more attached because I'd been there. Yeah. My, okay. So that's funny. Cause our, I have a, a daughter that's about the same age as, as yours, but she was sick the day oh. after the Astros won the world series. And it just worked out that, that I'm, I was the one who stayed home. And I woke up and I was like, and like, she's running a fever and, and, and I'm like, no one is going to believe this. Like, cause I've been, <laughs> I have, t- I've been talking this up. Like no one is going to believe me. And so, you know, first period I have, I have soccer. So no one really, no one really paid any attention to it. Uh-huh. Second period, like I started, cause we have this messaging system that, that the district allows us to message students and parents uh-huh. if we need to. And it was about second period that I started getting a, Oh yeah, I'm sure you had that. That uh, yeah, you've got a sub. That makes sense. And and then one kid was like, was like, uh, you're staying home because you're hungover, right? And and I was like, I'm hungover, but that's not why I'm home. And I don't have to like take a picture of of my daughter and like send. Them. I'm like, look, I'm being serious. Like she's asleep on the couch. I don't I don't have a I don't have a choice. Did so being in DC for 2019. What was the because I'm I'm it, I don't know how how you felt going into the 2019 world series. Mm. But, but someone asked me for a prediction. I was like, Astros in three, like this, this should be done by like seven 15. I don't, I don't, I mean, we should, should, shouldn't be that hard. What was your level? Like, do, I'm, I'm sure people around the Washington post know, like you're the Houston at you're the, you're the Astros fan just because like we're an anomaly They're so outside, of, know. outside of Harris County. So did, was, were people giving you crap? Like, did you have bets with like, Nationals fans, like how did how did that work at work? Well, it was you know, DC is you know one of the flaw. I like DC a lot of things about DC, but it's such a casual sports town. I mean, I think it was you know it was a big Redskins town, but sort of before I moved here. But the Redskins are so they've been so bad for so long that's kind of been lost. It, like the Nats fans, to me, the quintessential Nats moment was the first time they won the division championship, and I think it was like 2012 or 2011. They go back into the locker room, you know, this, so this, you know, they, 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 all the coverage of like the, you know, the lockers are covered in, in plastic, there's beer out and they're like ready for their celebration. And the owners had brought Wolf Blitzer down. So like Wolf Blitzer was in the locker room and <laughs> like just exuding unexcitement. Like it was just, everyone got there and like immediately was like, oh crap. Like how can we celebrate Wolf Blitzer's here? And, and, and like that Wolf Blitzer to me is always like the quintessential Nats fan. Like He's, you know, people are excited about the Nets, but like nobody really lives and dies with them. That, so that year there was a huge bandwagon effect. Everybody got on the bandwagon and they were, I have to admit, if they hadn't played the Astros, like they were a really fun team. They had like lots of guys like, you know, Howie Kendrick that like were out of their minds that year. So people were mostly just happy. Like they were, they were not like giving me crap. And it was like sort of, some of it was good natured, but like they were so just like, none of them had really ex- like uh, invested like a lot of blood, sweat and tears into the Nets. So they weren't like Red Sox fans or something, or even Astros fans where we, they were like, they have to win to have validated my years of fandom. They were all kind of like, I learned about the Nats three weeks ago and I'm so excited, <laughs> you know? Uh, and you know, the whole baby shark thing, people got into all that stuff. So there was like some, 
animosity. How did, we, how did we lose to that team? Freaking baby shark. Uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I just, I can't, I still so, can't believe it. So my friend who worked for the Astros came to, um, came to DC. And so I went to all three of the games that were here in DC. And there was, a, there was like in the, in the like right field seats there in the upper deck, there was this whole section of Astros fans that the Astros had flown up all these people who, who worked at the stadium. Like we talked to this guy who was like a, you know, worked in the catering services. And so that was like a one section of people who were like, you know, dancing around for Jose Altuve. And we were like, it was great for all three nights. They won all three games. And when, when, and when they left at the end of game five, I had the same feeling that you did, where I was like, you know, we're going home up three to two. Our two best pitchers are pitching like it's over. Right. Like it's done. Yeah. put it in the books and then somehow they blew it. So what was it? I mean, so being in 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 the news industry, the Mike Fires article comes out. Like, did did the attitude towards you as the Astros fan change? Like, what did you did you get yes. like? Because uh, I've had trash cans brought to my classroom, like basically <laughs> on a on a weekly basis uh, from from mainly Rangers fans. And I swear that the the Mike Fire story is the greatest thing to ever happen to a Rangers fan. Oh uh, it's the it highlight of their existence, yeah. sad, miserable existence. <laughs> um, so, what was the fallout like for you? after the fires article comes out and then, and yeah, and, and going into spring training. Well, so, you know, for me being an Astros fan for the last few years had been kind of like really, I was the only one that anybody knew. And so everybody was like, I had a bunch of Astros stuff on my desk and everyone was like, so sort of like happy for me. And then, like I said, good naturedly, you know, rivalry, you have a good nature rivalry in 2019. And then it changed, you know, now you were like supporting this thing that even, you know, very casual or non fans, knew about um and you know so it was that part was really i mean i always feel like that the one of the hard things about being an ast- a, a sport houston sports fan for a long time putting aside the rockets in 94 95 was like you know you always had the sense that they were going to blow it you know like that there was always a sense that like you know the Oilers are up 35 to 3 the astros are you know you know like all these things that like they were going to find a way to lose it and then once they won you were like well that's in the books you know they cannot take that away um, and then this happened and it's sort of like, well, you know, it didn't take it away, but it's like it devalued something that had already happened, which I sort of thought was impossible. Um, and that did make it hard. Like I, I we went we had already bought tickets to go to spring training in um, this year in Florida. And so we went down there and, you know, the Nats and Astros share that spring training facility. So, you know, the first Astros um, game is against the Nats and it's like just all Nats, all Nats fans and everybody's booing, boo Astros, <laughs> you know, and it's, it was, it took me until the, the playoffs this year to sort of get back into the team and start, you know, start watching them again. Um, no, that's, I, that's exactly what I did. I didn't, I didn't watch a ton of regular season games, um, just sort of processing everything that was happening in the yeah. world. And, and, and I, and, and I still, I'm not sure was that just residual sadness from this past off season or, or was it just a, hey, you know, baseball might not matter that much just yeah. with everything that's going on. But, but yeah, it was, it was until the, and I, the, this year's playoffs, like I wasn't, I, I watched every minute and every pitch and sort of the edge of my seat, but I wasn't like pacing around in the kitchen trying not to throw up like <laughs> I was in 2017 and 2019. Um, but I, yeah. So I, I don't know. I don't know. And I don't know if it'll, if I, I'm, it'll come back. I'm, I'm very glad that there's no baseball for a while. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I'm just, I'm sort of ready to get back to a, a sort of 
uh, not not insane normal, but I'm re- I'm ready to have that sort of spark rekindled a little totally. bit. And I was glad that they did so well this year because it did sort of, you know, a lot of the, the attacks from people who didn't really know the team was like, well, they wouldn't have won anything in 2017 if it hadn't been for the cheating. And obviously this year with like kind of a half a team, they did, did so well. I thought it was good that they like could sort of show they, they belong there, even if, you know, even without the cheating. So what do you have next? What major, massive major story? Give us the scoop. Like, tell us what, what do you got? What do you got coming out? Well, for me, it, uh, the story is still going to be tr- the Trump organization. So now I write about the Trump's business and his conflicts of interest. And it's going to be that through the inauguration and maybe a little bit beyond. I mean, one thing that we're interested in, and two things, is how much is, is he going to take from the government and put it in his own pocket between now and the inauguration day? And then also um, what legal problems will he have after the election? So you know, there are two big investigations in New York um, from the state level and the, the, the Manhattan DA that could put him or some part of his business on trial next year, that could be a really big deal. Eventually the Trump era, you know, it, for me will end. Um, but right now I feel like I have a lot of knowledge about some like random golf courses and, and golf course <laughs> loans. That's really not useful in any other context. So I should like keep playing that out before I have to go back to zero. <laughs> David Ferentold, thank you so much. This was, this was so much fun. Uh, happy Thanksgiving and, thank and all the best to you. Um, Make sure you're following him on Twitter and and you never know if you're going to end up helping to break some crazy story. That's right. Thank you, man. Thanks for having me on.